So as uh, usual we'll begin with the uh, dedication of offerings. times it vanishes without trace we render with offerings our rightful homage sadhu no bande bhagava suchira parini bhutopi it is well for us that the Blessed One, having attained liberation, Bhachima Janadanu Kambamanasa, still had compassion for later generations. Ime sakare dukhatapana karabhute patiganhatu May these symbol offerings be accepted Amhakang dikaratang hitaya sukhaya for our long-lasting benefit and for the happiness it gives us. Arahang Sama Sambuddho Bhagava The Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, 
บุตรทางพากวันทางอาบิวาเดมี I render homage to the Buddha the Blessed One ตาตาโม The teaching so completely explained by him, Dhammang Namasami, I bow to the Dhamma. Supati Pano Bhagavato Savakasango. The blessed ones, disciples who have practiced well, Sangang Namami, I bow to the Sangha. Anmayang Buddhasa Bhagavato Bhubhavaganamakarangaromase. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato. Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. Homage to the Blessed, Noble and Perfectly Enlightened One. Homage to the Blessed, Noble and Perfectly Enlightened One. Homage to the Blessed, Noble and Perfectly Enlightened One. Happens to all of us. Rigpa when you don't want it. <laughs> Otherwise known as a senior moment. <laughs> Mary Ann taught me that one. Where is she? She's gone to the movie. <laughs> okay. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. 
Buddhang tamang sankhang namasami. Uh, a couple of um, points that um, a few people have asked about and thought it might be useful to uh, clarify a little bit, um, just uh, uh, in terms of um, some of the technical things. Um, a lot of people uh, here have done a great deal of uh, vipassana practice, and um, there's certain different ways that the word vipassana is being used, both um, sort of traditionally in some uh, styles of retreat, uh, like in uh, also in my own um, conditioning training through the sort of Thai forest lineage, and also through the um, the language of the Tibetan tradition. Um, so I don't pretend to be an expert in either the first or the last. I'm still kind of working on the middle one, but. Uh, um, and it seems as though um, that people seem to do have a very uh, well-integrated grasp of, of how you know, this Dzogchen practice and, and Vipassana kind of merges, but it was, it was suggested that it might be good just to say a few words about this, so I thought I'd just begin with that this evening. Um, oftentimes, uh, Vipassana practice uh, has been taught and, and uh, cultivated with a very uh, particular uh, fine detailed attention on uh, mental objects, objects of experience, whether they're physical sensations in the body, um, uh, thoughts, feelings, sounds, um, emotions, um, whatever that might be. And that there's a, 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 a very uh, scrupulous, acute attention on the nature of the of the object, watching very very closely how the, how the um, objects of experience come and go and change, um, and meeting each of those with a, um, the uh, uh, recognition of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness, selflessness, and so on. And um, so the the main characteristic really being like that fine attention to the to the object, you know, the the objective world. So it seems uh, my own training in, in uh, vipassana has um, been not so much kind of fixed or, or kind of associated with that such a specific technique, but um, sometimes using that kind of that tightness of focus uh, more often for myself uh, and, and generally how it's uh, taught is both um, uh, at least in the uh, Thai forest tradition or Ajahn Chah's monasteries in particular that there's um, the attention to the object, but there's also a, um, a sense of the field of, of, uh, of, say, awareness that the object is appearing in. So there's, the, there's observing the coming and going of, of feelings and thoughts and perceptions and so on, but also just a, a kind of holding of that within the space of awareness. So there's like a, um, a, an object within its context. Um, and um, these are kind of sweeping generalizations, but you know, 
but just so, to, so that it's kind of giving a bit of a picture. And then um, and that's extended then um, from uh, obviously from the, the objective distant objective realm to then um, taking in the the subjective as well, just the quality of knowing, so that um, our various um, masters in Thailand like Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, and um, uh, Ajahn Brahma Muni, um, kind of leading uh, meditation masters, would often talk about um, kind of letting go of the objective realm altogether and just being the knowing. Um, the uh, in, in Thai in Thai language, it's yugap uh, ru, very easy. Yugap ru, yugap kwam ru. Um, so there with the, which literally means there with the knowing. Um, so uh, it seems that the Rigpa practice is is also dealing with um, as almost a specific um, uh, turning away from the object, you know, deliberately not paying much attention to the object, sense object, <laughs> but putting most of the attention onto the nature of the subject, a kind of inclining away from the, like the pull of the senses and and, and uh, working primarily on letting go of the subject. But uh, um, similar to the Thai forest teachings, which is you know, one of the reasons why I found such similarity, it's kind of guided in the same way, so you're emptying out both the objective and the subjective realm, and so that the, the aim of the practice is, is like subjectless, objectless awareness, so that the heart is resting in Rigpa, in, in that quality of, of open, spacious knowing, so that there's the, the recognition of the mind's own intrinsic nature, uh, that is empty, lucid, awake, um, bright. Um, and also in Thai, they have these, they love alliteration. So uh, they, uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa used to use this phrase, sawang sa'at sangup. Sawang, which means bright. Sawang is like light, sawang. It's also the word for heaven, sawang. Sa'at means pure, sangup, peaceful. Sawang sa'at sangup. You don't have to write that down. <laughs> So uh, this, um, there, there's a, a, a kind of a much less um, particular way in which, and this would still be regarded as vipassana in, like in, in sort of Thai forest lang- tradition language. So it's much less um, nailed down to a particular technique, but much more vo- various practices one could use to arrive at that emptying out, letting go of, disidentification with, um, thoughts and feelings, the body uh, and uh, the mind and the the world around us, to arrive at this quality of of um, of liberation, of uh, kind of realizing the mind's the mind's own nature. I've also re- recollected um, a passage from the... Um, uh, I mean, I do tend to have a sort of syncretistic mind, so it did remi- I was suddenly reminded, um, listening to these teachings, of a, a line from the... or a couple of lines from the, the verses of the third Zen patriarch, where he says, All is empty, clear, self-illuminating, with no exertion of the mind's power. Now, those teachings have been around for years, haven't they? So suddenly, this is exactly what it seems seemingly to me. This is exactly what the this uh, the guidance that Rinpoche has been giving us during this week is is pointing to that, you know, awakening to that. Particularly the last line, with no exertion of the mind's power, 
no body doing anything. So this is the intrinsic uh, quality of mind. And like I was saying last night, it's like we, we take on certain um, uh, conventional practices like calming the mind or brightening the mind, or waking up the mind. But we're just bringing the conditioned realm into alignment with the basic already existent reality. So the intrinsic nature of mind is already totally peaceful, totally energetic, totally awake. That's its intrinsic nature. Also, um, another point that, that came up in, in just in the discussion this evening that I thought might be um, helpful uh, to, to kind of uh, outline is um, like in, uh, uh, and I, I, mean, I kind of referred to this at the beginning of the retreat, but in taking, in taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, there's internal and external ways that one can reflect on this. And it's been interesting to me, like ref- reflecting on these these different um, the the uh, uh, taking refuge, uh, ordinary taking refuge, extraordinary taking refuge, and um, the, uh, the the uh, the kind of different levels of of, um, of understanding given to that, um, and how we can look at Buddha Dharma and Sangha as uh, aspects or, or ways of talking about the same quality of Rigpa. Like Rinpoche has been saying, you know, that it has uh, the qualities of emptiness, of knowing, of, of, uh, of lucidity, uh, clarity. And also, um, it's interesting how uh, over the last few days, the, the last factor, which has gone from being a combination of the, the coexistence of the two together, he started talking more and more about that manifesting as compassion, compassionate action, or compassionate activity, innate compassionate activity. So, um, I don't want to get too technical, but it, this is, I find, a very helpful way of talking about it, that, that um, the, uh, the Buddha is you know, that which is awake, that which knows. So taking refuge in Buddha is taking refuge in the awareness of the mind. And that uh, the Buddha arises from the, from the Dhamma. The Buddha is an attribute Knowing is an attribute of that fundamental reality. So the Dhamma is, the, is, if you like, is the ultimate object, the way things are, and its characteristic is, if you like, emptiness. The Buddha is the ultimate subject, that which knows, that which is aware. Um, so when the ultimate subject is, uh, uh, knows the ultimate object, when the, the mind which knows is aware of the, the way things are, what comes forth is Sangha is um, compassionate action, is um, an in, like, intrinsically flowing forth from that, uh, that quality. When, when there is awareness of, of the way things are, then appropriate, compassionate, skillful means flows naturally, uh, arises naturally from that. So that these three, you can see, is interweaving. And uh, also it's helpful to think of them as uh, basically as all... Uh, uh, so si- uh, separate qualities of the same thing, like water, um, you know, has the wetness of water and its um, uh, and its translucency and uh, and its mobility. You know, you can't take the wetness away from the water. You know, it's like you you can talk about wetness, but you, know, you can't separate wetness from water. And also the kind of mobility, the waviness, the the kind of movingness of water, you can't extract that. Either, but this is a quality of water that's separate. Uh, you can you can distinguish it, but you can't separate it in actuality. 
so that it's it's helpful when you're actually um, uh, investigating this uh, quality of, of Rigpa, the mind's own nature, the nature of mind. They're just seeing how all of these qualities are kind of uh, are intrinsically interwoven, intermingled with each other, uh, that you can't actually separate them out. They're, they're of one piece. And that the, um, the say the um, uh, a way of help uh, of kind of holding it all together, and this also be mentioned, is just and I, this is something a phrase I like to use myself, which was one of Ajahn Chah's um, exclamations one time was. Inside is Dhamma, outside is Dhamma, everything is Dhamma. Whether you like it or not, it's all Dhamma. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's like saying it's water. Inside's water, outside's water, everything's water. It's like that our, 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 the mind is, is, uh, the, is, is Dharma, the, uh, the knowing is Dharma, the physical world around us is Dharma, all the beings around us, you know, everything is all part of nature. Dharma. Nature is another translation for Dharma. So that it's like giving that quality of of unification um, and uh, and uh, say um, wholeness, and it's just a phrase that I like to, to use myself. Also, another way you can look at it is as when the, when you're resting in when the heart is resting in Rigpa, what you then have is Dharma aware of its own nature. Now you might think you're just kind of making yourself a bit inflated, but also just during these kind of uh, um, these practices of visualization, like visualizing, you know, taking the Buddha into yourself or Vajrasattva, and you know, then seeing your body and speech and mind as the Buddha's body, speech and mind. You know, in a way, it's a kind of creating an ideal that we can live up to. Um, but it's also um, similarly, it's actually helping t- us to arouse the intuition that that perhaps is already the case. That actually, um, even though we might say visualize the Buddha, you know, turning forth qualities of kindness and, and compassion and wisdom and sort of beaming that into us and then sort of the body having kind of been beamed into and then filling out with that brightness and then sort of taken over, completely um, possessed by, the, by this being, that... Um, uh, and it's like, okay, well, all of the kind of little me has been driven out, <laughs> and there's just this kind of Buddha stuff occupying my frame. Um, you know, it's, it's a way of, of using our imagination, but it's also it's, it's designed to to trigger that kind of uh, uh, an intuition or recognition that perhaps that's actually already the case. That actually the wisdom of my mind is is actually no different by a, by a hair's breadth from the wisdom of a Buddha. It's just the, the, that quality here is somewhat more obscured than that which is going on in the, the mind or the life of a, of a Buddha. And that, you know, it's, you know you, we, we get very kind of um, personal about such things, but I've, you know, we can say, oh, I'm, you know, am I trying to fool myself that I am some kind of wonderful avatar? You know, but just try and lay that aside and just use these sort of phrases as a way of helping to uh, illuminate those kind of um, self-limiting uh, restrictions 
And just to help the heart awaken to that realization, this is like the basis of faith, is like reckoning, when you say to yourself, this is just Dharma aware of its own nature. Like, well, what aspect of you is not Dharma? You know, what aspect of you is not part of nature? You can name one. <laughs> you know, your problems, <laughs> your obsessions, your ingrown toenails, you know, your, uh, your, your, um, your mind, your, your ideas, you know, all of it, every single part of us is part of, is part of the natural order. There's no element of our being or anything around us that, that doesn't belong to the natural order. So, uh, when we say, you know, this is Dharma aware of its own nature, that knowing mind is an aspect of Dharma. Just Dharma knowing itself. And so it's like permeating our uh, self-centered uh, perceptions and habits of thinking. It's just like blasting it through with this light of wisdom, just kind of drenching it so that something in us you know, starts to awaken to, oh, maybe, me too. Me? A swan? And a very fine swan indeed. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Says, look in the lake, look in the lake, look in the lake. You know, so then it's exactly what we're, we're, we're doing. It's like, go take a look. It's like in these wonderful words in, um, in these, uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, the verses of the first Sokni Rinpoche is, um, yeah, there's no Buddha elsewhere. Look at your own face. You know, look at your own face, and it's like, not your wrinkles. <laughs> look at your original face. <laughs> there is something beyond the wrinkles. Yeah. Moisturizer. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, So then the question comes, so, so, Vajrasattva, <laughs> does he exist or does he not? <laughs> really, really, truly, you know, yeah, so, so we have the visualization, but you know. <laughs> There's a German person on this retreat who said I got the accent right, so. <laughs> You know, so the, the dowsing mind, you know, now I can imagine that a few of the, um, um, the Vipassana wallers uh, who hadn't done, been around many of these retreats would have been um, slightly taken aback with some of the visualization and, um, and so forth. Uh, it also, I, mean, I must say, I blink a couple of times when it's, you get this sort of, okay, imagine Vajrasattva with consort and all the jewelry and <laughs> sitting, you know, floating on this lotus in front of you with a, you know, a moon disc and a, and a Vajra, and then you've got the hundred-syllable mantra. The last time he did this, when I, the last retreat I did, you had the hundred-syllable mantra rotating around, <laughs> you know, the presumption being that you can actually spell in Sanskrit, you know, <laughs> to begin with. So you've got the hundred-syllable mantra rotating around this, the, the Vajra and then dripping Amrit, Amrita, nectar, kind of down over the, the you know, Vajrasattva and the consorts, kind of. And then that's sort of all dripping onto you and it's like, you know. And you can, I can maybe sort of conjure up a little feeling of some sort of goldenish light kind of somewhere in the vicinity, but uh, 
you know, the, my Sanskrit spelling is not up to snuff <laughs> by any means. But uh, so you know, there's this. Um, we kind of we're stuck with this puzzle of well, you know, are we supposed to believe this or are we supposed not to? And you get that it really triggers the. At least for many people, it triggers the um, sort of uh, materi- Western skeptical materialist program. Like, uh, am I just going to s- sort of supposed to believe in this and feel like you know, and feel like okay, I'm just not good enough because I can't really buy into it, or do I just sit here and and or, and tolerate mindfully, you know, <laughs> uh, kind of dealing with my emotional reactions. Well, there's a um, uh, there's a large chunk of the Buddha's teachings that that that, that um, talk about this whole question. And uh, funnily enough, one of the um, I only found this out recently, but apparently uh, one of Nagarjuna's great treatises, uh, the Mula Majjhimika Karika. Um, is actually based upon uh, a passage from the Pali Canon. Let's see if I can get this right. So um, this is Nagarjuna is a great philosopher and one of the mainstays of the. Uh, many of his teachings became kind of central tenets of the Mahayana tradition. But apparently, many of his uh, of his teachings and commentaries were, were based on the Pali Canon. And this one uh, particular passage that this whole uh, exegesis is based on goes something like. When one sees with right wisdom as it actually is the uh, arising of the world, and as in the same sense as I mentioned the other day, like, as in the, like, the, the um, uh, experiential world, the world as we experience it, then non-existence with respect to the world does not occur to them. Okay? So when you see the arising aspect of experience, like things appearing, then when, you swim, when that's seen with right wisdom, then non-existence does not occur to you. And when one sees with right wisdom, as it actually is, um, the disappearance of the world, the cessation of the world, the kind of fading away of conditions, the, then uh, existence uh, with respect to the world does not occur to one. It is with ignorance as condition that formations come to be, with formations as condition, consciousness comes to be. And then he goes into the the, um, the, the pattern of dependent origination. And uh, this is uh, in the whole collection of the Buddha's teachings. On, uh, there's a whole large chunk of the, the, the teachings collected by subject, the Sangita Nikaya, that's about causality, causation, and, and particularly dependent origination. And um, it's, uh, it's interesting that like, this word rigpa, as I mentioned before, is a translation of the Pali word vija. And then um, what you have in this, say, in this passage, and, and what always begins the dependent origination with ignorance as condition, formations come to be. Like when there's marigpa, when rigpa is lost, then the whole cycle begins. So the Buddha um, wouldn't take the um, side of existence or being, or he wouldn't take the, the side of non-being. He only points out, well, you know, um, to say being is true, that's the fact. Like, you know, I am. That coincides with eternalism. And to say, you know, I am not, or non-existence, nihilism, that sides with, with, uh, with annihilationism, with nihilism. That non-existence sides with that. So that, uh, and this used to frustrate the, his um, contemporary philosophers like crazy. 
because they felt he, you know he wouldn't give a straight answer. But he every single time he would uh, he would um, point out that you know the the teaching of the Tathagata is the middle way. <laughs> yeah, and that um, uh, and he would say that the whole duality of say existence non-existence really there not really there arises because of ignorance because of not seeing clearly when there's when vijja is lost when when knowing is lost then you get sankara duality this and that subject object here there and the whole cycle of self other me here and the world out there kind of kicks into being and that all of these judgments of of really existing you know not really existing etc me really here um uh it's me not here, you know, arise from that. So, um, the, what he's pointing to is that, you know, and it's, it's very difficult to figure out, but he's like, um, when people would try and nail him down, he'd say, you know, you get answers like, um, exist does not apply, not exist does not apply. Both exists and does not exist does not apply. Neither exists nor not exist does not apply. You know, the Tathagata teaches the, the fact that the truth is other than this. It is with ignorance as condition, formations, blah, blah, blah. So you might feel this is, this is completely um, pointless. <laughs> but um, what, uh, what is more helpful, rather than trying to pursue that track of, you know, tell me once and for all, uh, does the self exist or not? Does Vajrasattva exist or not? Uh, it's actually to, to come more from the experiential you know, side. You know, what can that be talking about? Rather than saying, you know, is this, this here? You know, Vajrasattva is supposed to be the embodiment of all the Buddhas. Uh, I looked it up, by the way. <laughs> I was never quite sure whether Vajrasattva was supposed to be a Buddha or a Bodhisattva, but apparently Vajrasattva is like the embodiment of all the Buddhas. And so in practical terms, which is actually where it becomes realistic, um, is where um, we can say, okay, well, what could that quality be? If we're talking about Vajrasattva, is like that quality um, of, of being, either you know, internal or external, that um, completely purifies our karma, completely purifies us from any kind of uh, fault, any kind of wrongdoing, any kind of negative um, uh, obstacle. You know, what could that be? That, that has that kind of power to, to purify. Well, on, on reflecting on this, um, then what it can only be the insight into emptiness, into that, the, the complete letting go, the recognition that, that um, yeah, no, no thing whatsoever is me or mine, whether uh, material, physical, mental, um, whatever um, occurs, whatever is experienced, you know, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself, this is devoid of, of existence. That, that insight itself, not the idea, but that actual quality of seeing, um, means that like, regardless of what, if you like, what Mara is throwing at you, regardless of how fierce or strong or wild, or like Rinpoche was using, what, who shows up in your house? It's like, yeah, come, come in, come in, come in, yes, you're all welcome. Whoever shows up, you're all welcome. Just come in, you know, join the party. It's no problem, because there's this fundamental um, uh, recognition of, of emptiness. Yeah, there's also... Um, 
uh, I was reminded for the first time when I, I, I was uh, on the, the retreat la- a couple of years ago that um, reading these verses of um, the first Sokni Rinpoche where he says, um, Mara is the mind clinging to like and dislike, so look into the essence of this magic, free from dualistic fixation. That's actually very, very similar to uh, some verses from uh, the... Like the uh, uh, the, the, um, the kind of enlightenment gatha of Ajahn Chah's teacher, Ajahn Man. He says, Realize that your mind is unfabricated alpha purity. There is no Buddha elsewhere. Look at your own face. That, that, you know, that this is a, you know, saying to us, well, what we have with, a, say, the visualization or the, or the picking up of, of the principle of some, something like Vajrasattva is like helping us to you know, awaken to that, that very quality. So it's like taking an external object so we can, we can say, idealize something externally more easily and then revering that, honoring that and then uh, inculcating and cultivating the suggestion that actually that quality is possessed already within us. It also reminded me of a, of a story with um, when Ajahn Sumedho was a, a young monk in Thailand and um, he started out life at Ajahn Chah's monastery um, as a very kind of zealous, kind of, um, hyper-keen monk. And, uh, and within a few weeks of being there, Ajahn Chah was the greatest Dharma teacher in the world. He was the most enlightened master in the, plan, the planet, and he was the most brilliant teacher. And Wat Pong was the greatest monastery in the world, and Theravada Buddhism was the answer to all the world's problems. And he was really flaming. And, uh, and then, but of course, as we know, the result of... <laughs> of uh, uh, of that is that you know, after a while the, you know, the fuel dies down and so he started as the months went by and a couple of years went by he started to notice a few faults you know, the way that you know, Ajahn Chah handled certain situations and you know, the way that he kind of chewed betel nut and no one else was allowed to chew betel nut not that you know, Sumedha didn't want to chew betel nut but you know, <laughs> a lot of the other monks you know, used to and Ajahn Chah banned it but he was still allowed to and then he banned cigarettes which were kind of popular amongst the monks in Thailand. He banned cig- It was the first monastery in Thailand where they banned cigarettes. But he still smoked. <laughs> and then even when he said he was going to stop smoking, one time Ajahn Sumedho was, you know, was uh, kind of wandering around some of the, you know, the, the back pathways of, of the monastery, came across Ajahn, Ajahn Shah with a <laughs> large cigarette in his mouth. And so then he's caught, you know, caught the master in the act. And then it's like, you know, he's, he's about to leap into this, aha, I caught you. And Ajahn Chai just kind of looks at him and gives him a big grin, <laughs> takes a deep toke and carries on, you know. <laughs> so these kind of things were mounting, slowly but surely, as, uh, as time went by. And, and finally, um, also being a, you know, a true, reasonable um, uh, Western rationalist, he decided that, um, that uh, you know, enough was enough and that um, since Ajahn Chah was so exalted by all of the, the, the Thai people and the monks and the lay people and, you know, and, and the, uh, the monastic community, you know, definitely no way the nuns would ever criticize Ajahn Chah. And even the monks, you know, who had some you know, quite, quite tough guys and straight, uh, straightforward people, none of them would, would, they all held Ajahn Chah in such high respect, no one was ever going to say anything. So they thought, well, I know I'm only a junior monk, but I really should do my duty. So um, he thought, well, I'd better get prepared for this. So he, um, he developed a list. <laughs> and he kind of carefully enumerated all of uh, Ajahn Chah's faults. 
and then because uh, he, he wanted to be prepared, he wanted to have you know all his kind of facts straight and ready with him. So he got his list together, and so that then um, he, he kind of chose a moment and asked Ajahn Chah, you know, could I um, have a chat with you sometime? And you know, Ajahn Chah's life was pretty open, like like Rinpoche was saying, you know, the lives of these people are pretty uh, um, uncomplicated. You know, Ajahn Chah didn't have a private life. I mean, he said that his private life is very simple. He didn't have one. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very easy. Well, he'd kind of sleep on his own in a little hut, you know, for about four hours a night, maybe. That was it. That was his private life. The rest was kind of open game. So, uh, so anyway, Ajahn Sumedha asked if he could have a chat. And so he, he kind of tried to choose a time when there weren't too many other people around because he didn't want to, you know, didn't want to embarrass Ajahn Chah in front of everyone. <laughs> he was very thoughtful of him. So, <laughs> yeah, you can see, you can see the blade kind of hovering over him, ready to, ready to fall. So anyway, he plucks up his courage and then finally comes up to Ajahn Chah and he sort of memorized his list of all the things he's got to bring up. And so he comes to him and starts recounting this list of, of um, you know, that you know, Ajahn Chah, you know, he he really, you know, he's really putting on weight and he's actually quite a lot heavier than he really needs to be. And you know, he's trying to set an example for the other monks and. And, you know, he kind of t- spends so much time just talking with people. And often what he's saying is not really good dharma. It's just kind of chit-chat and shooting the breeze and talking about, you know, this year's uh, mango crop or, the, you know, how the chickens are doing or, you know, how to look after, giving someone advice about how to look after the water buffalo and, you know, even discussing fish traps, you know, and uh, the Northeast Thai life. And, and so that's, you know, and there was the beetle knot and the cigarettes and... You know, so he had his whole list, and I'm kind of extemporizing a little bit here, but <laughs> poetic license, so. <laughs> just in case he hears the tape. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but you know the kind of thing. So anyway, finally he he kind of does this long delivery, and he gets to the end of the delivery, and he's sort of like, okay, and he's just waiting to get blast. You know, in normal human circumstances, you'd expect to get kind of a reaction. And Ajahn Chah kind of looked at him and said. Well, I, I'm, I'm very grateful for you, Sumedho, to, to bring these things up to me. And, uh, you know, I'll, I, I think I'll, I'll really consider you know, what you said and, and, uh, and see, you know, what, what can be done. But also, you know, you should bear in mind that um, perhaps it's a good thing that I'm not perfect. Otherwise, you might be looking for the Buddha somewhere outside your own mind. Uh, ah, so... <laughs> So then the, uh, the, the young tomato crawled away, <laughs> crawled away, kind of, in sort of simultaneously heartened and chastened, and, and also heard, you know. So, so this is a, an Ajahn Sumedho has told that story himself, you know, uncountable times, so it's, it's not kind of privy information. Yeah, I mentioned um, the, um, the insight that Ajahn Chah had um, in, in uh, studying with Ajahn Man, um, that we spent a few days with him. Um, that that the um, there is the mind and there is his objects, and the two are intrinsically um, separate from each other. And that in really seeing that and knowing that, then he found he had this very very profound insight. Um, so in the language that we've been using this week, um, this would say, you know, there's mind and there's mind essence. You know, so that the words, you know, I used it slightly differently before. I used mind as kind of big M, mind, and mind objects. So the way Rinpoche has been using it is like there's mind, as in the conditioned mind, the dualistic mind, 
and as mind essence, you know, as the unconditioned mind, um, as the conditioned and the unconditioned. And so that, uh, and it's really, um, I think, a powerful resonance that the you know, this same emphasis is, is given. Another way that Ajahn Man phrased it in the same um, Enlightenment verses, um, which is called the Ballad of Liberation from the Five Khandas, which is uh, where he just says this wonderful sort of this wonderful kind of show-stopping phrase where he says, "The Dhamma stays the, as the Dhamma, and the Khandas stay as the Khandas. That's all." Uh, in the Sanskrit, that would be skandhas. So that means that the body and feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. So the Dhamma is the Dhamma, and then the, the khandhas are the khandhas. There is the unconditioned, there is the condition. There is mind, there is mind essence. That's it. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. <laughs> there was a, an occasion also where... Um, I mean, Ajahn Chah had heard that from Ajahn Man and had, um, had, uh, it had it affected him very profoundly. But then he, he also used to often talk about the occasion when it, it really came to life for him uh, most um, emphatically. Um, in, in Thailand, um, the, um, they have a um, very strong... Uh, ghost culture, and uh, though many of us maybe sort of last worried about ghosts when we were small children, um, in Thailand uh, it's a very very strong cultural presence. And as a kid, you're brought up on the most incredibly. I mean, we, we had some pretty bad ghost stories, but the the ones they tell the kids in Thailand are these really gory, kind of nasty, <laughs> all sorts of. Um, you know, blood and guts and, and uh, serious, nasty, serious kind of evil nastiness, malevolence. And so that uh, everyone's brought up on this, and so uh, um, just because that's the way things are. And, uh, and so there's a, culturally, there's an immensely powerful fear of ghosts. And this was something that had really bothered Ajahn Chah. He was a pretty tough nut. You know, he was always a very, you know, strong, um, strong kid when he was, when he was uh, young and and uh, generally known as a, as a sort of self-reliant um, and a strong man. But uh, even he, well into his monastic life, you know, he had this incredible terror of ghosts and, and, uh, f- and there's a very strong fear of corpses. So um, he decided that, you know, he, he had been a, a meditation monk for quite some time, and, uh, but he realized that he'd been kind of avoiding this and it was something that he'd never really resolved and that wherever he went to stay on his own in the forest he'd be kind of doing his protective verses <laughs> to keep the kind of ghoulies and ghosties at a distance so he decided the way he would deal with his problems whenever he realized there was something he needed to learn he would just kind of go straight at it he was a sort of deep end kind of guy <laughs> so he, um, he decided he'd been running away from this for long enough and that he was going to confront it and he, he was staying near this village and he, he decided to set up his his um, mosquito net and camping place out in the, the there's a burning ground outside the village and uh, you know probably it's difficult for us to to um, comprehend what this is like but the, the monk who was writing his biography said it's rather like if you if you remember reading 1984 uh, room 101 where you meet with that which is 
most, the most kind of visceral terror, the most kind of nameless primordial terror for you, you meet in room 101. So like going into the burning ground for Ajahn Chah was like Winston Smith going into room 101. So that he said, and his own descriptions of it, it's like he said it took every ounce of his effort, his will to put one foot in front of the other. You know, as dusk was falling, and his mind is screaming, don't be so ridiculous, you don't need to do this, you know, it's not good for your samadhi, you know, after all, let's be reasonable. <laughs> you know, maybe you can do this later, you know, next year when you've got your practice a bit more together, blah, 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 blah. you know the, you know the um, scenario? <laughs> but uh, he just had willed, he just willed himself to do it, and he, and he set up his camping place, and there, there, there was a, had been a cremation that day of a young child. And so he kind of made his camping place out in the burning ground, <laughs> put down his mosquito net and, and sat there and, and so the people did the cremation and then um, and then he was really he was okay while everyone was around then everyone left he was there on his own and so there's a long description of his sort of going through the first night and, and filled with kind of lurid imaginings and, and, um, and then uh, just through sheer willpower getting through to the next day just kind of Kind of locking himself into the spot, and then, um, and then, in the morning, as dawn came, he thought, "Oh, great! That's fantastic! I've done it! I've done it! I've done my I've done my cremation ground thing! Right, I'm off." <laughs> and so, you know, the, you know that kind of reaction where it's okay. I've done my bit. Okay, I've qualified now. I've, you know, I've done my suffering. You know, I don't have to do that anymore. You know, please, can I go now, sir? But he realized, no, 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 no. That's, that's not transcending fear. That's just enduring it. You know, I haven't got through this at all. You know, I'm still absolutely terrified. I'm just kind of, I've given, I can give myself the excuse that I don't have to do this anymore, but still, it's just right there in front of me. And I'm, I'm determined to get through this. So then, uh, as it happened, somebody else died that day. And uh, they had another cremation the next night. And so he said, I couldn't believe it. I thought, you know, I, I was kind of really proud of myself that I was going to stay, but I thought, uh, you know, okay, well, <laughs> there, at least there's not going to be another burning. But sure enough, and this one was an adult. And so um, he stayed there through the, through the cremation, and again, everyone left. And this time he said, okay, this time I'm not going to use my mosquito net. Now, you might not think that a mosquito net provides very much protection, but any of you who've ever camped out in, some, in somewhere like Yosemite or, or um, in a place where there's you know, bears around or, uh, and, or wild animals, it's astonishing how just the thinnest little layer of, of netting or plastic, you feel like, oh, grizzlies, yeah, no problem. <laughs> grizzlies, schmizzlies, easy. You know, they just treat it like a kind of you know, wrapped in rice paper. You know. <laughs> just get stuck between the plastic bits, get stuck between your teeth. But the, otherwise, it's well, like one of the Gar- Gary Larson's cartoons with the uh, these two polar bears looking out over an igloo and saying, oh, "I love the ones with the chewy centers." <laughs> So anyway, you, you, can, you can experience an astonishing amount of security underneath a mosquito net. I've done this myself in, like, in our forest uh, uh, by Agiri last year. I, spent, I 
went out and camped in the middle of the forest. And, and we have bears and some mountain lions around and that kind of thing. So I was camped by this little creek um, um, way off in the woods, you know, my, a mile and a half away from everyone else. And uh, just, just uh, fasting for a few days and living on the, the water from the stream. And, you know, for the first couple of days, like every t- leaf that fell from the tree or every kind of twig that dropped was like, you know, at least three bears and a mountain lion. <laughs> every time. And then when night fell, it was like they were trebled in number. So after a few days, I got used to this. But believe me, like having the mosquito net down and a, can- and a candle inside, it's like you just feel like you're in Fort Knox. It's like, <laughs> no problem. Put the candle out and it gets a little bit more hairy and then lift the mosquito net up and it's like... <laughs> you do that really kind of, almost kind of 360 degree vision. <laughs> so anyway, Ajahn Chah decided, okay, no net, no candle, no nothing. I'm just going to sit here. Just taking away all the feelings of protection. Okay, let's do this properly. So he, he made this resolution to, to sit there and to, to just be with the feelings that he experienced and to, to, with the intent to try and get through the fear. So whereas the night before he just sat there and there had been kind of, you know, the usual sort of animal noises and crickets going and going all night long and, and you know, leaves and things dropping from the trees and nothing very special. On the second night, you know, he, uh, he's sitting there and, he, uh, and around about midnight he thinks he hears footsteps and then, you know, when you live in the forest, you get to know, I mean, I know the difference between a deer and a bear quite easily now, and, and uh, you know, they, they're very distinct sounds that different animals make, and what a lizard sounds like, and a snake, and so on. So anyway, he's sitting there, thinking, that's footsteps. It's, it's not an animal. It's a two-footed creature. And it's coming from the fire. Maybe we should lower the lights. <laughs> so it's, 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 don't be ridiculous, don't be ridiculous. Maybe it's one of the villagers coming to see if I'm all right. Maybe they, you know, they come to offer me something. And well, if they do, they'll, they'll come up and say hello. Okay, just don't. And he determined not to open his eyes. So he's going to sit in there. Determined not to look. So then he hears these footsteps. getting closer and closer. He's sitting there and he's starting to tighten up a little bit. <laughs> and the sweat's starting to run. And he says, okay, just don't, don't panic. It's just, a villi- it's just one of the villagers. And then it's just, it's very heavy footsteps for one of the villagers. And, then, and he said in his mind, <laughs> you can leave him off if you like. In his mind's eye, he could see this this charred body, kind of the skeleton with the kind of guts hanging out, and the charred bits of flesh hanging off, and skin, and the kind of eyes down the cheek, and it was all just uh, in the half-burned mouth, and it's kind of walking towards him, and he's just just like, don't believe it, it's just your imagination, it stops, be still, just concentrate, let go of the fear, let go of the fear. (laughs) So, it gets closer and closer. And then he and then he, he hears the, the steps going around him, walking around him. 
and they kind of circle around behind him. And by this time, he's, he said it was like white-hot fear. He said he had just gone beyond this kind of anxiety. His body was just like locked solid. He was absolutely rigid. His body was pouring sweat, and it was just like this white heat fear. And then this, this uh, figure came, you know, came around him, behind him, and then came and, and kind of stood right in front of him. And still, he's determined not to open his eyes. And then, and so at this point, it's just like he's so completely uh, fear-stricken. It's like the fear just went so far that it just kind of it it burst. That it got so like there was the maximum that the fear department <laughs> could generate. The this, the fear system was just going absolutely full revs. And suddenly, he had this thought. All these years I've been reciting, you know, the body is impermanent, feelings are impermanent, perceptions are impermanent. The body is not self, feelings are not self, perceptions are not self, mental formations are not self, consciousness is not self. I've been saying this for years and years. And of course, you know, when you're that afraid, you know, you're very concentrated and very, very alert. So this insight kind of flashes into his consciousness, like all these years I've been saying this stuff. Well, even if this is some terrible ghoulish monster that's going to that's gonna attack, all that it can attack is that which is not me. All that it can harm is the body, the, the feelings, the perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. That's the only stuff that can get damaged, and that's not me. That's not self. That which is knowing the body and the perceptions, that... It can't be touched. And instantly, the, he went from this kind of white-hot fear that in the, 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 the feelings of terror completely evaporated. Just, it's like, so it was like switching off a light. They disappeared completely. And uh, he just went into this incredibly blissful state. It just went straight from, from total um, dukkha, you know, pain, fear, to this extraordinary bliss. You know, his mind was pretty alert. And uh, and then as as that happened, then he heard the footsteps go. Disappeared. He never knew what it was. But he sat there out without moving until uh, until dawn. And he said, and during the night, the rain fell. And the kind of rain was pouring down, and he'd feel these tears of, kind of, of, of rapture just kind of running down his face, mixing with the rain. And just nothing in the world would have moved him. And, he said, and, and just comparing that experience of freedom from fear with the first half of the night, with uh, this, the abject terror. And so this kind of burned into him indelibly the, the fact that you know, the Buddha is the refuge. The Buddha mind is the refuge. And that is the the uh, the safe place, you know. Or as uh, you know, the first Sokni Rinpoche has, there is nothing else to search for. Rest in your own place. And uh, and he realized that's it. You know, regardless of the situation, no matter what you meet, that's it's just a matter of doing this. You're remembering this.
Now the um, you know this is a dramatic tale, and um, and and yet um, and we might think, well, you know, cremation grounds and ghosts and stuff. Well, you know, what has that got to do with me? So I thought I might try and make it a little bit more practical. Um, one of the things that I'm fond of quoting, um, which those of you who've done retreats with me will um, uh, indulge me. Uh, this is a, a, a little fact that um, I find extremely significant. But a number of years ago, I think it was Harvard University Psychology Department did a, a survey uh, with many thousands of subjects to uh, inquire into what people are afraid of. And um, at the top, uh, in the top ten, you had um, like dying of cancer was about number four, um, and uh, the uh, I forget what number three was. Number no, num- yeah, number two was nuclear war. Number one was public speaking. <laughs> right, we're more. We're more prepared to live with the entire destruction of the planet <laughs> than we are to live with with embarrassment in public, ego death. Isn't that interesting? We're, and the the other rest of the top ten, we're all kind of like losing all your possessions, you know, being raped or attacked, and you know, I mean, they weren't kind of fun. <laughs> but number one was public speaking, so we're more afraid. Of uh, of dying on stage, than we are afraid of our own physical demise. I think a lot of it's to do with the fact that that, that physical death is is kind of abstracted and, and something that's kind of not allowed in American society nowadays. You know, even when you're in your coffin, you look like you're on your way to the dance to a dance. You know, with a nice suit and the kind of all kind of made up and looking great. You know. <laughs> little carnation in your lapel, nice dress on or whatever. You're all dressed up somewhere to go. <laughs> you know, and, and aging is certainly out. And, you know, and if somebody does die, you know, the doctor has failed. Right? If, you, if the patient dies, the doctor has failed. It doesn't mean to say that, you know, there's no recognition that the cause of death is birth. <laughs> right? So there's this kind of massive denial of physical death that we have. So it's sort of it's really off the screen for a lot of us, but in it's kind of abstracted. And also, most of us don't live with with meeting a lot of physical death. If you don't actually do hospice work or work in a hospital, oftentimes many people live well into their adult life um, without seeing a dead body. My mother said, my, when my father died at the age of eighty, that he was the first corpse she'd ever seen. Yeah, so um, you know, perhaps that's something to do with it. But if you reflect on it, you know, that how many times have you either said yourself or you heard other people say, "Well, I don't mind the idea of dying. I don't mind dying. I don't. Want to, I just don't want to experience a lot of pain. But you know, I'm not afraid of death." But then, if you say to someone, "How do you feel about you know f- um, failing? How do you feel about making a, an idiot of yourself in public?" How do you feel about launching some project and then it collapsing? How do you feel about being rejected by your lover? How do you feel about being um, told that that, um, what you've done or or what you represent is completely useless? 
get the taste. <laughs> you only have to run a few of them. You know, each of us have our own favorite ones. Like, you know, you're really not a very attractive person. <laughs> you know, you were quite good looking once, but now, <laughs> you know, I'm just going to go and find someone else. Thank you very much. You know. <laughs> You know, it's just it's that we would run from, you know, hundreds of miles. But that, so that we can see that there's a sort of, there's more identification with our personality and our ego than there is with our body, right? For most of us, that's, that's the case. So that, um, that this kind of confronting the fear of death is the sort of thing that uh, is in a way more skillful or maybe more appropriate just to to work with that in terms of confronting ego death, you know, being ready to be in those situations where your ego is utterly challenged. I, I, I recognize myself, I had a, a lifetime fear of failure. That I, uh, uh, and I, I found I could be pretty competent at a lot of things, but I also could see that I, I only choose, chose to do things that I was going to succeed at. I wouldn't participate in things that I wasn't good at. And that, um, and I could see um, this is kind of well into monastic life that um, there was this uh, serious investment in in kind of looking good all the time. And uh, those of you who are Dharma teachers will know that one of the most um, radical places of exposure is giving Dharma talks. And like, when I first started doing this, I'd noticed that you know I I give I give a talk and then. Uh, and then, even though it might be, feel as though it's kind of going down well, sometimes, you know, particularly in monasteries, people can be pretty unresponsive. You know, the lights are dim and you're kind of up on the, the high seat and you can't really see whether people are kind of snoozing or they're, like Rinpoche, they're kind of... You know, he was demonstrating the, the sleeping, you know, the sleeping monastic posture. Yeah. Perfectly balanced, totally unconscious. So that you know, you you give a talk, and then I find myself sort of. Uh, uh, this was at Amaravati, and there's this little kind of vestibule room, and so that all the monks would have to pass out through this room before leaving the building. And so I find myself kind of hanging around in the doorway, just sort of like, <laughs> like just to, just this kind of, and there would be this this kind of nebulous state of like of, of fear and anxiety, like oh my god, how did it go? Do people like it? What do they think of me? You know, am I okay? And then, and then, um, and then all it would take was someone to say, oh, great talk, that's yeah. And then it's like ah, <laughs> bliss. Or sometimes it would be like the next day, you know, you everyone would kind of walk by, and you're still in this sort of tense state, kind of not knowing whether you've totally blown it, and people think you're a complete idiot, and you're know, utterly. Um, you know, missing the point of the whole thing, and then somebody would come up to you and say, "Yeah, what you said last night—that was—that's the most kind of useful thing that you've ever said, that I've ever heard said. You know, it's really a kind of treasure." You, ah. <laughs> She's so wise, <laughs> so discerning. Yeah, she's a really good nun. She really understands the Dhamma. You know, <laughs> what you mean is like. She just pa- she just pampered my ego, <laughs> so I, I kind of began to notice this and um, this kind of trait and realized, hey, this is this is this is, a, this is an ailment that <laughs> needs some attention. And um, 
And so I began to, to deliberately fail. This took a lot of doing. This was like, you know, I mean, not quite as dramatic as Ajahn Chah in the burning ground, but in, in, a exper- in, in turn, subjectively it was. You know, so that I would deliberately um, put myself in situations that I knew I wasn't sort of particularly skilled at. Or, or I would... Um, I oftentimes we'd have like a big morning meeting every day and Ajahn Sumedho would be at the sort of the center of the group and, and er- the rest of the community would be all sort of scattered around and kind of grouped around in the hall. And I would be off to one side and, and every so often there would be some kind of... And I was you know, about fifth or sixth monk, so I'm kind of not right up in the front line. But every so often... You know, during the conversation and sort of handing out the t- affairs for the day, or I just made a kind of conversing with people, you know, some kind of opportunity for a wisecrack would appear, and I would, surprise, surprise, jump in and uh, make some kind of witty remark. And then, um, and so, and I began to notice that, you know, when I said something and everyone kind of, ha, 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 ha. You're a very good audience, by the way. <laughs> and then I would feel this kind of really distinct glow you know, like the cat that got the canary. Kind of, ooh, feels so good. And I thought, ooh, I began to recognize that's pretty sick. <laughs> you know, there's just a feel that kind of, that sort of relishing feeling. Like, didn't Amaro do good? Scored a point there. And similarly, if I chimed in and then said something that I thought was witty and it was like, complete, you know, uh, you know f- fell completely flat, then I just find myself kind of just breaking into a million pieces, like, oh my God, that's terrible, oh, this, is, this is a disaster, this is awful, this is terrible. <laughs> and it, it wouldn't even be verbal, it would just be like the, the million pieces feeling, just kind of shattered inside. And so I began to, to realize, oh, the, the one feeling you chase after with great vehemence and the other you run from. So I began to just... Um, operate in a way where I would kind of risk more. I would kind of, not necessarily just saying stupid things all the time, but (laughs) (laughs) you might think I've developed the art of anyway. But but, uh, just putting myself into a vulnerable position and also um, learning to just stay with that feeling of of kind of shatteredness or or like the the ego kind of being broken apart, not getting what it wanted, not getting the kind of strokes. And, that, and actually, it took a long, long time just to be able to stay with that feeling and recognize, you know, after it was sort of burbling and blabbering and, and blubbing for you know, five or ten minutes, then I get, this is just a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Finally would sort of tag onto it and say, oh yeah, this is actually just a feeling. And then as I, I kind of had sort of turned towards it and uh, allowed myself to risk that much more, I began to see how, mu- how much energy I'd put into avoiding. There was a, a kind of undercurrent of fear, of like terror of that happening. And actually by turning towards it and going into it, just like you know, Ajahn Chah had done with the burning ground, that that very gesture of turning towards it and allowing it actually was half the, pro- you know, half the solution. And then... Um, after a time, I began to, to really um, uh, could see how actually the, um, that was a prime opportunity to witness the collapsing of the ego program. And so to my amazement, after a couple of years, I began to find myself relishing being misunderstood, misrepresented, 
people not liking me or kind of having kind of critical opinions or it's like the it was amazing I'm not I'm not just saying this as sort of a, the kind of an achievement but it was a stag- staggering to me like isn't that incredible that the the heart actually rejoices in seeing you know the reality rather than having the ego flattered and so that um, in terms of, of uh, kind of learning to, to really trust the, the, this quality of, of knowing of, uh, and kind of going to, to establishing Rigpa and, and cultivating it, the, one of the most difficult areas um, is this, the whole kind of e- ego charge that exists for us. And um, you know, there was a, a question earlier today about, about decision-making. I won't go into now, but you know that's that whole area, like I making choices, me succeeding, me failing. How much that gets loaded with I-ness and meanness and minus, and how when we when there's a, a choice that we make gets labelled success, you know how much we glow that flush, you know that. That's the kind of beautiful, soft, warm, golden glow. Oh, feels so good. And then when we make a choice, a decision, and it collapses and falls apart, it fails. You know, we launch some project, <coughs> down it goes. Or we, we're going to go into a relationship, it snarls up. We go on a retreat and it's... <coughs> can't stand the teacher or the, you know, the practice is all back to front or our mind is going berserk. You know, we, that failure we take as uh, deeply personal. I have failed. And yet, this is exa- th- there's no element of that which is shut out of this insight. There's, there's no reason why um, all of that, every place where the ego feeling arises needs to be um, intrinsically obstructing that innate spaciousness, brightness. Regardless of how dense and thick it might seem, that self-sense is actually transparent. So I will leave that for you to consider for the evening and uh, offer these words for your reflection. Anyone? So we could finish with the uh, Nagarjuna's dedication of merit since Nagarjuna featured this evening. So on page uh, 8 of the... um, Actually, let's do the uh, the Vajra song of Sokni Rinpoche the first, and then do the dedication of merit. So, page six, first of all. Mayang, Mayang, Ranbag, Yanzo, Chuk, Yang, Well, Amla, Duji, Chaktang jenpe semde dudyen pe nyitin kundral gyumeng o wote kadak macho rangsem ngongyune sangye janna medo rangjalte Janne Sogyu Medo Rangsa Jog 
Magam klundrum yinpeg yasazin. Don't wander, don't wander. Place mindfulness on God. Along the road of distraction, Mara lies in ambush. Mara is the mind, clinging to like and dislike. So look into the essence of this magic, free from dualistic fixation. Realize that your mind is unfabricated alpha purity. There is no Buddha elsewhere. Look at your own face. There is nothing else to search for. Rest in your own place. Non-meditation is spontaneous perfection. So capture the royal seat. Sonam di tamje zikpani tobne niepe dranam pamje ne keganachi balab trukpa yi sipet sole droa droa shok. By this merit, may we obtain omniscience, then, having defeated the enemies, wrongdoings, may we liberate migrators from the ocean of existence with its stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death.